On 96.7 on your FM dial, this is Hugh Cruzel, and the program is QOL, or Quality of Life. You might have known this in his previous iteration when it was uh, it was called Eat This, Drink That. And as you know, we focused quite a lot on, on restaurants and food and food preparation, and of course, a lot on wine and spirits as well. Well, with QOL, we have a much uh, broader mandate to talk about everything that's under the sun and uh, certainly everything that affects your quality of life, both positively and negatively. But we're not going to talk negative, never. In fact, we're going to talk today something, oh, you know, I love wine. And I have one of the the small group of those who are in the inner circle who know about wine and what's happening in the wine world and write about the wine world. John Zabo, where are you today? Hi, Hugh. I'm in Prince Edward County, in a beautiful wine region, a little bit east of Toronto, a couple of hours. Not quite between Montreal and, and Toronto, but it's an emerging place, one to get on the map. It's true. Uh, 25 years ago, when I lived in Ottawa, you'd talk about Prince Edward the County, and people would go like, what? Where? Never heard of it. And uh, what, mm-hmm. a, what, a, what a quarter century makes, right? Uh, yeah, the change has been pretty remarkable. You know, 25 years ago it was really on the edge, but now climate is warming and grape growing is becoming certainly viable, plus technologies like geotextile. I don't know if you've seen these blankets in the vineyard that were pioneered, I guess, in Quebec, but have made their way to other cool climate regions like Prince Edward County, which saves you from burying your vines in the winter, which is, of course, uh, one of the most challenging aspects of viticulture here. I was going to actually mention that you you've got way ahead of me. I love it. I went down to for several trips to help with a, a plow tractor that dragged things and tipped soil over, and we we buried vines because some winters were disastrous on even hybrids. Yeah, certainly. I mean, without burying your vines or protecting them in some way, when it drops below minus twenty two, minus twenty three, or or colder than that, that's when grapevines start dying, even hybrids, but vinifera vines are, are a little bit more sensitive. So, uh, you know, it's challenging enough to make wine at the best of times, but in a cold climate region like Prince Edward County, there are additional challenges. And it's not so much the hilling up in the fall, you can do that with a tractor, it's unhilling them in the springtime that is the real challenge because that's got to be done by hand and you've got to do it very gently and delicately so you don't break any of the canes or the buds so yeah my hat is off to the growers of (laughs) pec but you know what the wines they make are worth it because they're really quite quite exceptional and unique well absolutely i i remember too something about uh we used to get snow abrasion on one side of the vines sometimes the crystals would move so quickly across that they would actually uh damage the the uh, uh some of the mid uh mid stem and uh, it depends on what the height of the snow was gosh john i have to ask Tell us the names of some of the the wineries we might even know of, and maybe some of the ones we don't yet that are are truly emerging. Well, there are, at last count, about 40 wineries, commercial wineries, producing in Prince Edward County, but some of the better-known ones would certainly be uh, Rose Hall Run, Hinterland, Huff Estates, Norman Hardy Winery, that's what I put in there, Uh, the Old Third, maybe not quite as well-known because they're tiny, they've only got five acres, but making some of the best wines without any doubt, here in Prince Edward County. Well, I certainly know Huff, and, and I've traveled through many of them, and you're right, many of them are very small, uh, less than a hectare of, of property, uh, although that's not uncommon in other regions. I think about France, where many of the small vignerons have, it's only because they collaborate with others that they're able to work with the negociant and, and make things happen. Is that happening there? Are people collaborating? 
Well, quite a few growers here in the county also buy grapes in Niagara just to supplement their production here because, yes, you're quite white small properties with uh, very low yields. So, you know, even if you have 10 or 15 acres, you don't get much fruit off of that. Just naturally, that's the way it is. Yields are, are about half, maybe even less than half than what you'd get in Niagara. So it's an expensive place to grow grapes. And it's often a smart idea to supplement that with, with, some, with some other uh, grapes from Niagara. But there are also some Niagara wineries who are now starting to come here <laughs> to the county to buy some grapes and do some exchange. Reverse migration. Papa <laughs> States and, and Taz did a little exchange. They, I think, traded a ton of Chardonnay from Niagara for a ton of Chardonnay from from uh, the South Bay Vineyard that Huff uh, has. And, you know, it was kind of fun to see a Niagara interpretation of PEC and a PEC interpretation of Niagara. Well, we do see this, of course, on the Gulf Islands, on Vancouver Island, where fruit does come, even in the Fraser Valley, fruit comes from a Soyuz, uh, from anywhere in the Golden Mile or as far north as Penticton and Kelowna. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. uncommon to, to ship uh, perhaps fruit with a little bit more uh, sugars to areas with a little bit more acidity. This is, this is yes. common in many other regions, isn't it? Yes, quite common. And until uh, some of the big companies move in here and, and purchase and plant large tracts of land, I think that will continue to be the case. But considering the economics, that's what's kept away the big houses. You know, I would have expected one of the big champagne producers to start sniffing around here. And maybe they will at some point. But uh, yeah, it's a bit tough. Yeah, definitely. Now, John, you are one of the key people in writing about wine here in Canada. I mean, you write about the world, but you've you've been very visible in the Toronto world and certainly in, in publications. And, and I just read an article that you wrote about uh, Herculaneum and Pompeii. Gosh, not even are you writing about mm-hmm. current things, you're writing about, about 2,000 years ago. Uh, John, how did, on earth did you get involved in this, this industry? I came through with the hospitality side of things. I suppose, like many, I worked in kitchens for several years before I got into wine importing and then wine consulting, did my uh, WSET diploma, then eventually passed the Master Sommelier in 2004. And, and, you know, it wasn't a planned career trajectory, just opportunities (laughs) arose and I was the man in the right place at the right time. So I took advantage and eventually got into writing, which is what I love to do. I, I studied language at University of Toronto, Italian and Spanish language and literature and you know that turned out to be particularly handy in the world of wine to be able to communicate with winemakers in their in their mother tongue and then of course grow up speaking French and and Hungarian so I had a nice well-rounded linguistic background to take me all around the world to learn about wine. So So you can say ferment without any problem you can you can talk about Tokai and say it actually correctly and how many puntonios there are. Uh, I love teaching students how to say harsh level. Harsh level oh my goodness. That's a big mouthful of a grape. (laughs) Or or Kadarka even I mean some of these things are Kadarka. It's it's, yeah you got to put the accent in the right it's I love Hungary. Hungary is such a microcosm of the wine world. It's got traditional, what we would call mm, heritage varieties. It's got it's got the traditional French varieties. It's 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 a very it's an intersection of the world, don't you find? And I think it's one of the last great undiscovered, if I could say that, countries of of the traditional winemaking world. It's still not on everyone's radar and the varieties are hard to pronounce and some of the flavors are a little bit out of the mainstream. 
but uh, really the the wine scene there i've been traveling to hungary since you know, the late 70s quite literally but more for wine since uh since the late 90s and i've seen the industry grow change shift evolve quality has risen exponentially as it has in so many other places but it still remains you know outside of very high level sommelier circles and wine trade circles pretty much unknown and there's a lot to discover there i'm a huge fan of of dry food i mean for example now that you mentioned it from the tokai region sadly nobody or few drink sweet wines these days but the but the industry has shifted over to making some really terrific, some of the best dry white wines in, in Central Europe, I would say, not just Eastern Europe. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's worth the discovery. I, I must tell you, walking the King's Hill in, in, in Tokai and, and going to places like Disnoko, I'm probably not saying that one quite correctly, but there's so many other small little um, Bart, Barta, uh, you know, they're producing... Barta. F- Fine, fine wine that is uh, is world quality. Um, I've had some great enjoyment, uh, partly because Hungary is mm, digestible. I mean, you can go from edge to edge. You can go from Veleni to to uh, Mischkoltz in in what three hours if you really push hard. You can go from one end of the country on the far end of Lake Balaton all the way across and and uh, isn't it wonderful? It's it's truly it's like a, a little Disney well, World for wine people. Traffic in, <laughs> depends on the traffic in Budapest. They still haven't finished the ring road around the city. So when you're going from east to west, you have to go through the capital. And you know you go the wrong time of day, it'll add three hours to your three hour tour. <laughs> but they finally got the highway out to Tokai finished, which was great. That uh, shaved a few few hours off that journey. Used to be this one lane road, you know, kind of like driving back in time in history. You expect to see a horse drawn carriage on on the side of the road, but no, it's it's modernized and and uh, I guess it is uh, more digestible. It's certainly easier traveling across country than it is from uh, uh, BC to uh, Vancouver Island. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, and again, in that region, uh, since we are talking about Hungary. And, and there's another undiscovered country right next door, Romania. And I know Zoltan Zabo would have a good chat with us on that one. But in Tokai and many of these places, the the cellars are are part of the mm, the mystery and magic of the place. The 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 openings in the sides of the hill that lead to to treasures underground. Uh, I'm sure you've visited so many of these, and probably with some great people. I don't know if you've met Hugh Johnson. I know he's got a property up there, Royal Tokai. Okay, but... I have met uh, I have met Hugh, and yes, you're quite right. There's a whole underground world of cellars, particularly in Tokai, hundreds of kilometers really of underground cellars where you know. Hungary's history really is. That's where the revolutions were fomented and discussed deep <laughs> underground, safe out of earshot of the Ottoman Turks who were camping nearby. So, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it really is like stepping back in time when you walk down these cellars and you enter them through these very unassuming, often just tiny little doors carved into a hillside. You think it's just a tool shed and then you open, walk down, you know, hundreds of meters into the ground and you're in this mold covered cellar with a very particular smell and if you've ever tasted Tokai you, you have a little sense of this kind of moist really rich earthy uh, aroma that comes in part not just from the grapes in the soil but also from the cellar environment in which the wines are aged quite special quite unique yes they're like little hobbit doors in some cases and you, you expect uh, you know gnomes and dwarves to to live down there <laughs> But, you know, it does, you talk about yesteryear, even the light switches, uh, because they have that Hungarian pre-1990 
proto-communist experience. You flip on these switches and think you're going to get electrocuted for one. But it turns these lights on down, down tunnels that extend for, for absolutely miles. You're right. Um, what a great... You talked about ancient history, and we've talked about well, let's look more modern history. John, you, when was your first taste? Can you recall your first taste of wine, or at least the first taste of wine where you said, uh, I need to know more? Oh, my goodness. I, I think this is where I want to be. I think everyone has that uh, aha moment when they taste a wine that really transforms their lives. And for me, that came in Spain. I was living in Spain, studying there at the time, playing some soccer. And I used to drink regularly, you know, 22 years old in Granada in the south of Spain, enjoying life. And wine was very inexpensive. I used to, you know, spend maybe two or three dollars on a bottle of Rioja and enjoy it quite a lot. But one particular day, my friends and I, we wanted to splurge. So we spent the grand sum of $15 on a bottle of wine, which was <laughs> enormous for us at the time. And we went on a little picnic, got ourselves some jamón and some manchego and some nice bread outside. We'd realized we'd forgotten to bring wine glasses but we had a corkscrew that was the important thing so we managed to pull the cork on this bottle of wine it was from a, a little producer called vega cecilia which of course one of the most famous producers, producers in Spain. Yes. it wasn't their top wine unico it was their second tier wine but uh, and that i think is, is now sell, selling for 150 or so but 15 dollars at the time we just passed around this bottle and, and drank out of it during our picnic and i remember the first time experiencing this liquid as it as it crossed my lips and into my mouth and suddenly this whole world of flavors opened up that i hadn't experienced before and you know that was the moment where you realize well there's more than just a pleasant taste and and uh, you know maybe a pleasant feeling there's really an entire world of wine here that wraps up biology and chemistry and history and geography and geology and you know all of the things that make us excited about the wine business so that was it that was 1994 95 would have been and it took me a little while to get into the business after that, but, uh, you know, certainly flavor, the world of flavor is what opened up first mm. and that translated into food, which became wine later on. And then first article, I, I actually tried to dig back, but I'm thinking that some of maybe your early writing actually isn't captured on the web. I, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> well, my very first article, coincidentally enough, was on Tokai. I had traveled there in 2000. It was the 2000 vintage, I recall, because it was an enormous Botrytis year. First time I tasted Essencia, that pure essence of Botrytis-affected grapes and sugars off the, off the charts. Anyhow, I was so enamored by what I had seen and experienced that I came home, wrote a piece, and I submitted it to Wine Access magazine. David Lorson was mm -hmm. the uh, editor at the time, who's now become a good friend and... and uh, and partner at Wine Align, and he uh, read it and said, that's pretty good, I think I'll publish that. And the, re and the rest is history, yeah. So it became a regular contributor after that, and Wine Access became, or was purchased by Wine Align, and David and I have been working for the last dozen years. We just celebrated 12 years with Wine Align uh, last week. Uh, can you tell the audience what Wine Align is? Because there are many platforms like yours, but yours is different. So winealign.com, it's an online publication that was originally devised by our, our 
CEO or chief wino, as he calls himself, Brian McCaw. He had just sold the business in the tech world, made a little bit of money, went out, wanted to celebrate, bought this expensive bottle of Shiraz that was recommended to him by the product consultant, took it home and was uh, nonplussed. So he thought there's got to be a better way to buy wine. So he thought up this platform whereby not one, but several critics would review the same wines, all of the wines that uh, came into Ontario at the time. And uh, you could then align with the critic whose palate best, best matched yours, right? So with a little bit of work, you taste two or three wines, you see my score, you see David's scores, Sarah's scores, Michael's scores, and um, you gauge your own reaction to it. And then, you know, you can start putting the pieces together. Well, John really loved it, but I hated it, so <laughs> I don't align with him or vice versa. <laughs> and then you can search for wines. And we tie it into the LCBO, we tie into the LCBO inventory. So you can search for the highest rated wine by your favorite critic in the price point that you want that's at your local store. So it's really a way of connecting consumers with great wines. And that sense. wasn't being done well. I, I mean, there were other people in the LCBO, the product consultants, but they always had a different kind of mandate. And there really wasn't good distribution of their, their message. And, and even though there's some good publications that come out of the LCBO, they, they really didn't do the... Uh, although I see even your name in some of the the vintages uh, publications, uh, so I mean you do have once, once in a while, but uh, <laughs> generally our scores are a lot lower than uh, international trade, and the LCBO doesn't score, but they just no. scour the globe for the highest score of the wine that they have to sell, which is I guess a, a sensible sales strategy. But yeah, we tend to keep our scores more. Uh, down to earth, shall we say? So you no know, ninety nine point fourteen dollar wines. <laughs> So, so, you know what I'm finding quite interesting here? You're talking about 1994 and 2000, and here we are in 2020, or if this comes out in 2021, or is listened to many years later. John, the average consumer is becoming much better educated about wine, much more astute in their purchasing. Many Canadians, surprisingly, uh, and my, my eyebrows went up, I mean, I can't see that on radio, but I was actually at a ride check recently. And that's traditional around this season. We are recording something close to Christmas. And the officers asked if I had consumed any, any alcohol. I said, yes, I, I had. Uh, they were shocked that I would say yes. And then they said, well, what have you been drinking? Of course, that would be a natural next step. Was it wine, beer, spirits? I said, it was wine. And they said, what, well, what was it? I said, it was a white Rioja. And they said, white Rioja? No, oh, Rioja's only come in red. And so that's your average police officer asking me about, right, do you see? It's really quite interesting, isn't it? it it's fascinating. And yeah, we've watched that world change pretty dramatically. So it's always uh, dangerous to say the average consumer because, right. of course, there's no such thing. Uh, and there are many ways of segmenting the market. But overall, you're, you're quite right. The level of knowledge has increased to the point where, you know, I get angry occasionally with uh, the marketing side or the production side when they refuse to, for example, put some relevant details or what I think are relevant details on the label. They say, oh, no, 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 you'll confuse the consumer. I say, well, who do you think your consumer is? These people know, they want to know that it comes from this parcel of land, not that parcel of land and this variety and made with this technique. Um, and, you know, I've never understood why they're afraid to give too much information. If you don't want the information, then don't read it, just enjoy the wine. But if you want to know, it should be there for you to find without having to dig around well, it, it is tough, though. I mean, let's go to our typical average uh, bottle of French wine. There's a front label and there's often no back label. 
uh, go to your Hungarian wines that sometimes show up in this market. You know, if if our our, our friend in Toronto uh, actually is able to be successful and he, he actually gets a listing, you look at the back label and it's either in Hungarian, which sometimes happens, or there's an additional label, or it's just bad spelling. Like, I actually have written to many, many wineries and said, can I help you? This is just, I'm sure you're doing the same thing and saying, you need to I fix this. I did the same thing with, uh, with restaurant menus when I was traveling around Europe. You'd see the English translations and they were just atrocious <laughs> so often. So, how about we make a deal? You know, you give me a free, free meal. Free meal, I'll fix your menu. menu for you. but, a few people took me up on that, but I thought it was a good idea. I think it's a great idea. But what about but, back labels? I mean, you have, labels, you have great influence. Yeah. Why not fix them? Well, I mean, you have to understand that in many cases, the person making the wine is a farmer and not in the marketing business and to understand you know what the back label should say for markets around the world it's, it's not a simple thing either no and i appreciate that but for me it's a it's a great opportunity often wasted you've got this real estate the bottle provides why not maximize it first of all make the text large enough so that somebody can read it even young people struggle sometimes to <laughs> read this minuscule print, but and, and then at the same time include some relevant information as opposed to goes great with uh, chicken and pasta. You know, what yeah. doesn't go great with chicken <laughs> and pasta? I always yeah, find opportunity this opportunity lost, but uh, definitely know, I focus more mostly on what's inside the the bottle than than what's on the outside. But how do you even do that? I mean, John, as as a as a advisor how do you set your agenda for the week the month the year i mean okay let's ask the question what's on the horizon for john sabo in 2021 because that's where we're going well uh, hopefully more of the same 2020 has been a, a surprisingly good year you know, i know that's not the case for for many hmm. but uh, i launched uh, my own podcast in the summer with one uh, line colleague sarah damato called wine thieves and we've been having hell of a time interviewing Winemakers, we started mostly in France, but we're branching out. We've got episodes on Austria coming up, New Zealand. We'll be uh, over in Italy at Vino Nobile, di Montepulciano. So you know, for me, this Zoom medium has turned out to be a, a godsend, being able to stay connected with the world of wine internationally without having to get on a plane or get my passport stamped. It's been a real joy. So I'll be doing more, plenty more of that. And then at WineLine, we've been doing uh, an awful lot of tastings. We've got a wine club as well, a wine subscription, I guess I would say. So we're tasting a lot of uh, wines for that. They come into the office, we taste through. The four of us agree or disagree on which wine should be included in each box. So they're all curated. And then we carry on with our LCBO tastings and our Canadian wine tastings. So it will be lots more tasting, lots more interviews, lots more writing, lots more reporting, you know, what, what I love to do. So I'm blessed in that regard. Uh, agencies have been doing collections. Restaurants have been doing collections. I think of Steve Bechta in, in Ottawa, who's, you know, when he sends out a meal, he has two bottles or four bottles, whatever you wish. Uh, um, I'm thinking of Wine Online. I'm thinking of Helpern. Helpern's been doing uh, uh, six packs, 12 packs. Uh, they've been doing um, uh, seminars on every second Wednesday. It's really been an explosion. You're right. Zoom has made a big difference in how we we mm -hmm. approach all this. One one fun thing we've been doing at Wine Align, uh, we, we dusted it off. It was a concept we came up with a few years ago. It's called So You Think You Know Wine, and it would be the Wine Align critics plus invited uh, guests around a table, kind of like a poker table, very dramatic, tasting wines blind and 
guessing what they are and putting ourselves really out there on the line because we truly did not know what we were tasting and we wanted to make it a slightly educational experience so we'd be describing the wines without giving away too much to our competitors sitting around the table but we uh, we dusted that off and started doing them via zoom we've done three uh, so far this fall and the uptake has been tremendous i mean we had uh, almost over with uh, almost 500 people for our last edition these are people sitting around some of them bought the wines in advance because if you sign up you get to, you know get what to the taste wines are. yes at the same time it's, it's wonderful so though, but yes. you're there in your living room with your with your bubble your friends and loved ones and you're tasting along and you're watching us describe the wine that you have in your glass you know what it is we don't and you can you know laugh or cry along <laughs> with us when we make our guesses and the big reveal comes out and we're spot on or miles away but you know it's it's fun it's educational it's a Fun way to spend 45 minutes on a Saturday, 5 p.m. cocktail hour. I love it. Oh, what a great uh, great concept. Just to remind the audience again, John, you, you actually have multiple platforms. So we see print articles. Uh, I don't know if you've contributed to some of the, uh, like uh, Rod Phillips contributes to Nuovo magazine. I don't know if you've, I think you've been there. I haven't done a Nuovo, but I, I, I also read a column for a few other magazines. There's one called uh, Monarch, which is another online publication down in the U.S. They're California-based. I write for Marquee Magazine, mm-hmm. which is based here in Canada, a luxury lifestyle magazine. Yes. Might might start doing some video for them. I've also, seen that in the Air Canada Maple Leaf Lounge and Signature Lounge. Yes. yes, yes. And now it's distributed in the U.S. as well. It, they've been growing leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. Uh, another one called Modalina. Yes. And also most, most recently, I uh, started contributing for a company called Cell Art. So for anyone looking to have a cellar built, and I'm talking custom-made, high-end materials, really unique, one-of-a-kind designs, Cell Art is, is really the place to go. I've, I've been to their shop in Montreal. They've got their own millwork. They, they do all of their own stuff in-house and Beautiful. some of the sellers they've created are <clears throat> absolutely spectacular so i've just been uh contributing to their website doing uh, what i what i really love to do which are long form stories so no tasting notes no scores these are like that uh, article on pompeii that was written for <laughs> cell art where i get to delve back two thousand years in history and and report on things that are obliquely related to wine but are for me fascinating absolutely the history of how we planted the 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 methodology that was done the 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 impact the the fact that there were how many wine shops in in pompeii i can't remember i think you did 200 wine bars. 200 wine bars 20,000 people that's a you know, <laughs> higher density than toronto these days <laughs> For wine bars, the Romans—they love to eat, love to eat and drink. We know that. Have you ever tasted? Just as a final, t- Falaria. Have you? Or Fal- I mean, no, there are other wines called that now, but that's uh, that was the hit. Well, uh, yes. So when I was researching my book on volcanic wines, that's when I was toing around uh, Pompeii and, and running through those old ancient Renaissance vineyards. But I also went to the appellation of Falerno del Masico, which is the current iteration, I guess, of Falernium, which was the Grand Cru of the day 2,000 years ago. And it was very likely, we don't know 100%, but it was very likely made from Alianico and Piedirosso, two indigenous uh, grapes to Campania that still grow there today and still make up the backbone of Falerno del Masico. So it's grown on the slopes of uh, an old extinct volcano called Rocamonfina. So the Grand Cru of Roman times was a volcanic wine, just for the record. 
Mm. Well, like Alianico de Voltura, that's another revol- of a volcanic region. Uh, John, as we wrap up, where else can we find you? And, and remind us again, so publications, there's the uh, your video Saturday event. Where where else are you going? What Are, are you appearing on, on major chain TVs from time, stations from time to time? Or is that the future? No, I don't. I think TV is the past. Uh, who watches TV anymore? It's all Netflix. And you know, I did have a, a plan to do a, a show, a, a wine show, but that got shelved at least temporarily with all the pandemic going on. But that might be dusted off. But for the for the time being, uh, check out our podcast, Wine Thieves, with Sarah D'Amato and myself, covering the world of wine, or WineAlign.com if you want great recommendations and you live in Canada. That's your number one source or sellart.com for great long-form stories, monarch.com, no, sorry, monarch.wine, I think is their website for for other interesting takes. I've done some food and wine pairing uh, articles for them, uh, Marky and Modelina. That kind of wraps it up for now. Well, it, and it, as, we, as we do wrap up... John Sabo MS. Uh, John Sabo, the absolute master of... Master sommelier, I guess, is the best way of describing you, right? Mm, yes. Yes. I want to say, Kusnam uh, Seit, Ben. I, I want to say thank you very much for all that you do to to improve the, the quality of our lives here in, in Canada, across from sea to sea to sea. Thanks very much, John Zappel. Sebastian. <laughs> You're very welcome. Grazie, grazie mille. 